Well, thanks everybody for tuning in uh, to Things That Matter. I'm John Weston, I'm your host this evening. We've got folks on the line from Taiwan, from Ottawa, from every point between, a few from my hometown, Vancouver. And I see uh, uh, Christopher Hebb is on the line who leads the Churchill Society here in British Columbia, Anita Zhang, who's at the Democracy Foundation in Taiwan and many other distinguished people. Thanks also to our production team, to Dana Elliott and Amber for making all of this possible. Well, the genesis of this whole series is about encouraging good leadership, um, being good leaders, encouraging good leaders, bringing the best out in people who are leaders in business and politics and in other walks of life. And we've uh, had some really interesting shows to date on peace and democracy in the Taiwan Straits on choosing your mentors and your heroes, and the most recent one, a controversial topic, vaccines and civil liberties. And you can see all of these things on Spotify or on um, uh, Apple TV uh, or on the website, johnweston.ca. So I invite you to uh, uh, share the link if you're interested. And tonight's show will also be available in its recorded version. Uh, next one coming up is about leadership and mental health. So mark it on your calendars. That's uh, March 9th with some pretty fascinating guests. Uh, look forward to that. And then tonight, uh, I hope that you'll be uh, feeding us your questions as we go. We will try and get to your questions. You can put them in the chat line uh, as we go. And also, um, if you would give us your feedback, we would love that overall on our show. We're always trying to get more relevant and uh, introduce uh, uh, better and better topics. Um, you can uh, follow the show on social media. Um, we're on um, all of these uh, different um, platforms, Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, and on Facebook. Well, tonight's topic is a tricky one. Uh, if we were in a place of worship, it would be pretty easy. Integrity is a characteristic of a godly person, and the Jewish and Christian scriptures are full of exhortations to live with integrity. Uh, about King David, the Jewish leader, Psalm 78 says, he shepherded people with integrity of heart and guided them with skillful hands. And notice in the sentence that integrity comes before the skill. And in a really fascinating book called The Economics of Good and Evil by Czech writer Thomas Sedlacek, uh, with a great foreword by Vaclav Havel. Uh, the author writes, we economists are trained to avoid normative opinions and judgments as to what is good and bad. Yet contrary to what our textbooks say, economics is primarily a normative field. So these two brilliant Czech authors are asking big questions that were not so much on the table at last weekend's conference in Vancouver called Money Matters. In a minute, I'll be introducing our special guest who was one of the keynote speakers. And he was uh, perhaps a, a little bit outside the, 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 the thread of the conference when he said, live life large. And he uh, went into this riff on commit yourself to your community, your family and your company. So tonight we're going to be hearing somebody who knows about economics, about real estate, about financials, but also goes beyond that, urging us to 
commit ourselves to our family, our community, and our company. He also said at the conference, truth is in and bluffing is out. So as we'll see in a minute, our special guest is someone who can really speak to the issues of integrity. My friend Ernest Lang, who leads the BC-based company Primerita Investments says, integrity is foundational to truly good leadership. Without it, there's no sustainable way to influence others and affect lasting positive change. His mantra and that of his com company is do well, do good and make a difference. The theme of living your life as a role model is a prominent one in all our Things That Matter episodes. And you heard it from a much more powerful podium last Monday when President Biden said in the State of the Union address that good international leadership is not so much about the example of power, but the power of an example. And if we move from the economic and financial worlds to the world of sport, you see it all the time that notable athletes are known not just for their prowess on the field, but also their character. One book that speaks eloquently to the role of character is The Boys in the Boat about the gold medal winning crew team from the US in 1936. And as one of the coaches says in the book, it wasn't just their physical prowess, but he liked the character of these oarsmen. So let's turn to our special guest and it'd be easy to introduce him based on his lofty titles. He's been the president of Royal LePage. He's been the chairman of NRS Block Canada and the US. It would be easy to vaunt his credentials by the responsibilities he's held. He's led a 7,000 person company and he oversaw a joint venture in Taiwan between the Bronfman Group and a powerful Chinese conglomerate. It added to our guest's celebrity status that he's featured in Donald Trump's book on being a North American, the North American expert on real estate, but that's not why we've asked him to tackle our topic tonight. It's tempting to bring him to you just based on his thousands of broadcasts and publications and his immensely popular online report, Ozbuzz, with its 23,000 followers. As president of Jurok International Net, he's constantly on the radio, on the internet, He's featured regularly on Michael Campbell's popular Money Talk show and was a keynote speaker at that big conference last weekend. But none of those are the reasons why we've asked him to tackle tonight's topic. No, I got to know Ozzy over 30 years ago where I saw him navigate the trickiest business challenges overseeing an ambitious cross-cultural joint venture that tested more than his enormous business experience. The only way he managed to bestride cultures and languages was by character. He worked hard. He was there late at night, much to the distress of all the staff who had to stay as late as he did. And he became known as a very, very adept business person in Asia as well as in North America. So Ozzy, I'm really delighted you're on the line tonight to talk about the importance of character in business leadership. And it's not typically what you talk about when you're on the radio, but I think it's all over what you talk about. So speak to us about that. Well, thank you, John. Uh, with that kind of introduction, I'm really looking forward to what I have to say myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, first of all, I want to make clear when, when I was in Taiwan, I met this young man named John Weston, uh, who uh, to my great surprise had this enormous talent to speak the language, which I did not. 
I, uh, I couldn't believe it that uh, he was as fluent in, uh, in Mandarin as, as one could imagine. And I tried every morning at seven o'clock had a young lady come to teach me and I, I never made it. So I, I have my greatest respect. One very quick thing was that we had a discussion one time in, in Taipei and you were wondering whether we, how, would, how do you always make extra money? I said, why don't we make a tape? In those days, there was no CDs. There was no internet. And if we, I mean, you know, we, we wanted to make an extra $20,000 or just by, you know, sell 2,000 tapes and make a $10 profit. This, and then we made this great deal. The deal was that we each could sell as many of those tapes, 14 ways to do business in Asia. And then we could keep our own profit after the cost. Well, I thought I had it on him. No, clearly he was an academic, you know, he's a lawyer for goodness sake. Well, he went and he sold twice as many tapes than I did. So, you know, whenever he holds back, he is right in there swinging the bat. So I'm, I've never forgotten that. <laughs> the toast of entrepreneurs, the Taiwanese business people, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, certainly I, I love Taiwan. I absolutely loved my time there. I certainly learned so much. I mean, you mentioned that people were there late at night. They were, were not there because I wanted them there. After, you know, I was there on behalf of Royal LePage, but on behalf of the Bonfant Group of Companies. But I was also, uh, after about six months, I was made the president of a Chinese company, not speaking the language. That was something. And so I was there late at night, yeah, and early in the morning. I, and I learned everything. I had somebody translate everything and read, read it late at night in the hotel. It was only after about uh, <clears throat> a week or so, I realized nobody was going home. So I said to the vice president, I said, Mr. T, where's, why is everybody here? Well, you're here, they're here. Ah. So then I went back my driver and we drove around the block a few times until everybody went home. And then I went back to the office. But that taught me something. There was a deep commitment in time and effort to whatever the enterprise of the company was. And, you know, I've, I've taught my kids and my grandkids and everybody was working with me. It's always good to be known as the guy that comes early or the girl that comes early and leaves late and rather he comes late and goes early. And it comes back, you're asking me to talk about ethics. Um, the, the, when I started in, uh, in, of course, I started as a branch manager, regional manager, then general manager and became president. That was a big question. In the 80s and early 90s, we were mission statements was the name. Everybody had to have a mission statement. And the idea was, came from uh, Tom Peters book uh, in, in Search of Excellence. And there wasn't a corporation in North America that wasn't involved in having meetings and deep thoughts and all these wonderful things. And I noticed that we came up with a big framed uh, mission statement. It hang in every office on almost every wall. And after a few months, when you asked somebody what the heck was in it, nobody could remember because we had created it, didn't mean that we were living it, much less we could replace it. And so I, I believe firmly that ethics in business, and maybe that's not the way you want me to go and you can always shut me up, but it's an individual thing. You have a big corporation, I don't care that 10,000 people, it's always the individual at the top that makes a difference. And it comes from home. My mother put ethics in me. There was no doubt about what she meant when she said it. You know, when I still today can't go on a bus without looking around whether there's not somebody older than I can give my seat to because that's what you do as a young man. And there's a dozen things that you just don't do and just certain things that you do do. 
Now, I want you to understand my mother was wonderful. She, you know, she said what you've seen and what you've eaten, what you experienced, nobody can take away from you. And I learned from her these concepts about uh, just in general, how do you change somebody's mind? And the difference is that we always talk about that we need to get people to understand. And I felt that I had all these pictures on the wall, all my business plans, all finely tuned, sitting in some drawer, and nobody was really living it. They weren't acting on it. And I, I, I thought, well, they, they don't understand it. So I went on a tour first uh, in branch level, and I had, I made speeches on, you know, what, how ethical we were and what services we were offering and why we would be you know, always successful because we had a certain values that we created. And people were applauding and they were saying, great, good stuff. Yeah, and then a few months later, I would ask them or something and they couldn't remember. Haven't we all done that? You go to a speaker and you take furious notes and then you know, you understand. You're on the way out, you're floating out and you think, yeah, I'm gonna do that. And then two weeks later, you open the trunk of your car and there are all your notes. We didn't do it. Understanding means nothing. It's not enough. You need an emotional buy-in. You need to sort of have a sense, oh, I get it. If I did this, this would change. And you know what, John, that's not enough either. So Ozzy, I'm just gonna um, point out, I mean, uh, I've observed you over time. I've seen you in your real estate action group. Uh, I've seen you, um, how you are patient with people, how you are always there to encourage youth. I've seen you um, uh, go out of your way to promote the Special Olympics with your friend, Michael Campbell. And it strikes me that these are things which draw attention to you as a role model. You're consummately skillful in understanding the world of real estate. Uh, people call you the real estate guru. That's why you were the person chosen by Donald Trump before he became president in his book. What's the book called that you're in? Of his? The, best, the best real estate advice I ever received. So Yeah, uh, and, and there you are. So um, we're, we're not here to talk about your expertise in that area. I mean, that's where you're commonly featured. I'm saying that the role of character is really critical in what draws people to a leader. When um, I was at Harvard in the late 70s, Derek Bach was the president of the university and he made a real point of saying the business school was going the wrong direction and introduced a whole curriculum about ethics in business. And this was well before Bernie Madoff and the famous uh, Lehman Brothers collapse and things like that. Uh, but there was a recognition that being good at derivatives, understanding how to invest, learning how to predict trends in real estate wasn't all there is. You know, I'm thinking of that famous Peggy Lee song, is that all there is? I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued when you look back on your fabled career as a real estate expert, how much character has played a role in the people who mentored you and in the way you think you mentor others. Well, yes, but that's the point I was trying to get to look. If you, first of all, ethics, you know, our country is formed on Christian Judaic ethics. And, and when we started, when the country started, the concept of honesty and trustworthiness and all that is, is the foundation of this country. And then now you're looking at, we have new religions, new 
um, new diversity in people and much larger scope on things to do. But I'm, I'm always putting it back to the individual. And I think we no longer teach values at home, but that maybe that is just too narrow focus. But I wanna make the point that look, for ethics is personal responsibility, corporate responsibility, there's loyalty, there's respect, there's trustful, trustworthiness, fairness, and social environmental responsibility. And we look at people on appearance, attendance, attitude, character, communication, all those things we look at, we write it down, we, we plan it, but we leave it often there. You go into the halls of large corporations and it's there. And everybody's saying, this is what we believe in. But you ask the secretary on the floor, she doesn't know. I mean, the president of SAS Swedish Airlines, he says the magic moments between our customers, our people or our followers, the magic moments come from, they just pick up the phone and call any one of our offices, see any one of our agents. And he wanted them to know what the company stood for, what we believe in, and all of the, 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 the goodness that we always preach and talk about and put on finely tuned papers, you have to actually teach it. And what I'm saying is that it's difficult because everybody believes just by understanding is good enough. It isn't just by feeling a buying, oh, this would make me feel better as a person or my family. It's not enough. There's only two ways human beings learn. One is impact. You're fired. Ooh, that works clear. I got that straight away. Or constant spaced repetition of a quality message, constant space. So your mother says to you, don't touch the stove. And my name is really Oswald. She'd say, Oswald, don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. She'd tell me 10 times and I got it. Impact would have been if I took my hand and put it on the stove. Oh, I learned that right away. Almost nothing is learned by impact. It's always constant spaced repetition. So if the chairman or the board or the president or the CEO, or whoever is in management or wants to be in management, wants to really understand the concept of what ethics means to you, what values do we uphold? What values do we fight for? What do we do for our customers? then they personally have to go out and be in the field. They got to ask everybody, it doesn't make it alive constantly. You can't take maybe once and then hang it on the wall and hope it will be implemented, it won't. Well, okay, L let me throw out an example. Going back to our days in Taiwan, and I don't know if this happened when you were there or maybe before you arrived, but um, I had just done a joint venture with a leading Canadian law firm called Bennett Jones. And uh, it was a great honor that um, they added my name to a, a firm which uh, had it in its name, the, a former prime minister, uh, Prime Minister Bennett. Jones was the uh, founder of the firm. And the firm in Asia was called Bennett Jones for Share Weston. And so we were just embarked on this and Taiwan decided to impose impossible restrictions that made it prohibitive for a law firm or an architecture firm or others from outside to set up in Taiwan. You had to have massive investment, just didn't fit the business models for professional service firms. And yet the Taiwan government was trying to encourage people like us to be there. And so I was faced with this dilemma. The new rules meant that I couldn't get a visa and I could try and practice my trade sort of under the radar or do something totally outrageous. And what I did was I first, and this is the key part, I went to my partners in Canada. I said, I don't really wanna go under the radar. So I'm gonna go the opposite. I rallied the different chambers of commerce, the Japanese chamber, the American, the European, and the Canadian society. I got them all to endorse 
a set of recommendations on how it could be feasible for other countries to send their professionals to Taiwan and published an open letter to the minister, published it in the newspaper. So it said, I am illegal. <laughs> you, the rules you've just passed minister have made it impossible for me or others like me to come to your country and do business here. So uh, there I was totally exposed waiting for the other shoe to drop. Was I gonna be kicked out on the next plane or, or what? And uh, I could only do that because the people that I worked with in Canada had the similar value system. They, they wanted to be known for their integrity above board. And ultimately the minister responded, changed the regulations to made it, made it possible for us to function. It was a good story and I'm not here to you know, blow my own horn, but it was an example where I could count on the integrity of my colleagues, really stick my neck out and do something that changed the way things were done in Taiwan and for our business. So, um, you know, I, I think that you need to be in a community, a business community where you can count on people to share certain values. What do you think about that? No, I do, but it's, I, I'm just saying they don't happen because we just put them on a piece of paper. You have right. to live them. I was part of the, the Quality Council of BC years ago, and they lent me out to a company, company and corporation. I was about 40 middle managers, and I just didn't get to them. My jokes didn't work. My bubbly personality didn't work. And I said, finally, guys, Astonishing. Yeah, I was bemused. But anyways, I finally guy says, look, you know, the chairman always goes to a meeting. He comes back with some new idea. We, we are doing a lot of things. We have a lot of things to do. And I'm busier than hell. And I know he's golfing, right? So here we have the, the values that you espouse. You have to live them as an individual. Doesn't matter what your position is in the company. And if you don't understand them, you have to be able to have a chance to, to talk about them. And so often I just think that we have a new book or we have a new trade or a new idea when really it, it comes down to the individual. I asked my mother once, I said, well, you always tell me to do the right thing, Muti. How do I know what is the right thing? She says, you always know whether it's the right thing. Whatever you're doing, you will know. Okay, let, let me challenge you a little bit on that. It sounds to me like you're suggesting that character and values are sort of innate, instinctual, and that would imply that you can't teach them. Derek Bach at Harvard was trying to teach them in the business school. Carson Pugh, who started uh, the Arrow Leadership Institute, uh, a Vancouver guy. I remember this, this lunch where we met and I put to him the kind of view that I think you're suggesting. I said, Carson, leadership, it's innate. It comes from the inside. You can't teach it. And, and he won the argument. He ultimately persuaded me that yes, you can teach leadership. Yes, you can talk about certain values. You can give examples. You can point to role models. One of our things that matter episodes was on this very topic. We had David Bentall and Lynn Kanuka. Uh, David is a business leader and an author and an athlete and a motivational speaker. Lynn was the bronze medalist at the Los Angeles Olympics. And they're both great mentors and role models in their own right, but in their humility, they talked about how mentors and coaches had taught them certain things, things about character that helped them grow into the people they've become. So let me 
come back to you and, and ask, do you think that there are ways to teach character to promote good values, the values that you talked about earlier? Or do you think it's all instinctual that all just sort of happens with your DNA and in your environment? No, no, absolutely not. Anything can be learned. I mean, I'm the best example. You know, I came from a from working as a waiter in the hotel to running the largest real estate company in our world. So the point is you can learn everything. That's but the point I was trying to make earlier was that you can do it by simply talking a story, signing a piece of paper. Human right. beings learn experientially. We got to experience it. So after I understand it, then I say, okay, if I feel it emotionally, if I acted my life and changed in my life, it would be so much better. I wouldn't have to make so many explanations. When I left Royal Page, we had a management group and we used to always have 20, 30 managers we meet together. We kept that group outside. And then we asked, we, we kept on, we started out by asking people questions and by, because we were trying to change the thinking of the people that we knew. And at the usual, what will you do in five years from now? And then we would say, if you had unlimited money and unlimited guts, what would you do with your family? And they would say the most astounding answer. In one case, fellow said, well, if I had unlimited guts, I would leave my wife tonight. I said, how horrible is that? <laughs> I mean, go now, let them find a better person. You're, you're obviously a bum. I mean, the thing is, you know, we have all of this, and, but we put questions particular, and then we realized this, you know, it, the, it, the truth is the truth. It is what it is. You cannot, cannot debate it, but you can affect change only two ways. Impact, somehow I get, get you going and I hit you between the eyes with something that breaks through or constant spaced repetition of a quality message. And I think that's when I became president of Royal LePage, we merged the number one company in Canada and the number two, Royal Trust and A. LePage. And the only reason I got the job from BC because Ontario, Quebec was three times our size, but it was because they lost people by the dozens. Whole branches walked out in West Mount and so on. Whereas we didn't lose anybody in BC. Well, I lived with my salespeople. You know, I, 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 you know, when we had a cancer in the office who was continuously saying he's going to quit, I would sit him down saying, look, I love you, you know, but you're going to make a decision. You either stay and tell everybody or you leave and you go and I sit here and cry. You know, the point was you have to make a decision. I called them. When I went to Toronto, everything that said Royal Trust, we eradicated. I don't care whether it was a mat or a clock on the wall or whatever it was, it is now Royal Le Page or Le Page Royale in, in Quebec. And slowly we turned it, but it came by the leaders forcing the general managers and the regional managers to be out there. And then all of a sudden people whip out the new mission statement in French and in English. And they were starting to have a little pride. And I would go and, uh, you know, they continuously got up and en français, s'il vous plaît, and was said a few words in French. And all of a sudden, we started to slowly turn it around. But it didn't happen sitting behind my desk. And the point I'm trying to make is, is character getting out? I think a little bit it is. Henry Ford walked on the floor with his shop all the time. I mean, he, he challenged people to do stuff. There's always something better in us, all of it. You're, you're different than you were five years ago. You will be different five years from now. The difference is today you can decide who you're going to be from five years from now. And I believe that we create, have to create environments where people motivate themselves. You can't motivate another person. You can't, you can try, but you can. They got to have feeling that it's all coming from inside and then the, the, the change will be effective. That's astonishing, really. And I'm not saying that in any sense of sarcasm at all. I've, I've seen you motivate large crowds. I've seen 
it was just last Saturday when you stood in front of over a thousand people and you talked about trends in real estate and you had everybody riveted. And then you kind of pivoted and you said, just a minute, everybody, make sure you take a bubble bath. Yeah. And everybody in the room, uh, you, you had everybody listening. You had, well, what does a bubble bath have to do with real estate? And, and your point was that, wait a second, money isn't everything. Real estate is important. Yes, but it, live life large. Don't forget. I mean, there's somebody out there who loves you, will love them back. I mean, you were, you, you motivated people. You, you know, you're telling me you can't motivate people? Ozzy jerk? I don't think it's, it's you know, I, I, I entertain them. Um, I get a nod, an understanding. But in our real estate action group, where we literally took several thousand people into getting on stage to speak for three minutes, because I believe we have perpetual note takers. We have perpetual people. They go and learn and learn. It's all academic. It's all paper. They don't do anything. And the only change that we really learn is, is who actually doing something, maybe a little bit, and then creating a new habit. And it takes time, but it has to start. When, when, I was the when I'm the leader in the group, yes, I will give them the facts. I can teach you 144 ways to become wealthy, but I can't teach you to get off the chair and make that phone call. I can't teach you to actually do the stuff you wanna do. And in ethics, there is absolutely no room for any doubt. Look, I had a manager once, as I mentioned to you, that, uh, that accepted a, a, a piece of jewelry from an old lady. I mean, how, by what measure could you, could you possibly think that was okay? <clears throat> and so once I told him and once I had him, in the end, I ended up, uh, we ended up parting on reasonable terms, but that was just a dimension he just didn't have. And to learn that, you simply you can't have it. It just as I believe you cannot tolerate mediocrity in your company. You can forgive and you can forgive twice, but in the end, you have to have some rules and regulations and there's certain, certain areas you just don't cross. So I'm, I'm hearing a bit of a theme in your comments that you can't benefit from writing down values. You've got to live them. But let me ask you, when you're setting up an enterprise for the young people in our audience tonight who are thinking about starting a business, and I know some of them who are, well, um, is it wise to build into your launching documents, your constituting documents, something about values? Is it wise to say, for instance, well, let me give you a concrete example. When a bunch of us started Access Law Group, we were quite methodical about what we were going to do. We weren't just going to practice law. We decided that we really wanted to spend some time asking what would be the values that would be connoted in everything that we did. And we came with three, compassion, integrity, and empowerment. We spent time on a retreat before we actually committed to work with one another. We got to know one another's spouses first. And then we published on our website those three values. And we also integrated into our partnership agreement that once a week there would be a business meeting. That's typical. That's just what you would expect. But there was something else in our partnership agreement that required us to meet just to spend time with one another once a week. It was 
you know, it wasn't a, a long period of time, but it was designed to ensure that we were in touch with one another beyond the transactional. Um, I'm not saying this is for everyone, but my point in citing the example is it was written into our documents. It was, uh, and, and we actually lived that. We, I think that uh, it wasn't just a sort of a, a paying lip service. We articulated the ideals, the values, and then we met and there was an implicit kind of measuring one another up. And I would say that for the most part, when I walked down the corridor of that firm and there were often doors closed and lawyers meeting with clients, I was proud of what was happening, even though I didn't know specifically what was going on. So my question is, um, despite my agreeing with you, you can't just write it and expect it to be prominent in your enterprise. But as a business leader, is there any premium at all in writing down things, integrating them into your foundational documents? Do you see any benefit from that? Oh, absolutely. I, I guess I'm always looking at large corporations. That group that you had was 20 people or how many, 30 people somewhere in there. And it's, it's good to get that group together. And it's great to reinforce it every week. It's perfect. That's exactly what you should do. But let's say you had 500 people reporting to you. How do you get the frontline believing the same value system that you want to get through? It's funny you should say this. I, my old course is, this is just the values I want them to pick from. I have about 200 values. And then I have in there, in terms of creating it, right? Then there's the special talents that you have. Then there's gifts that you want to leave to the world. What's your flair, your bent, your knack? What's your strong point? as an individual and we create a mission for you and I want you to live it and breathe it and sleep it and I will hit you over the head constantly this constant spaced friendly cooperative fatherly repetition and it will become part of the individual and when there's four or five individuals doing it it'll it'll motivate them it'll drive it because this is what we stand for and if you say my my values empathy or environmentalism or listening or morality or originality or sincerity or whatever it is it focuses you. No, absolutely it works. All I'm saying is the larger the corporation is, the harder it is to get it through. And it isn't just a slogan. It is, and, and you want to create this. This is why I don't believe that people working from home, and I'm probably saying the wrong thing, but people working from home won't work for corporate culture because the corporation used to create a coffee station so that a girl from accountant would meet the guy from, from the legal aspect and they would meet and then they realized they had something in common. Mm -hmm. Operations are losing that a little. And I tell you now with chat, GP, GTP, all these wonderful things that are happening out there. I mean, my goodness, uh, you know, you know, I, I asked uh, the, the program to write how to sell real estate to a dog and it gave me a 12 item dissertation that was high quality. You know? <laughs> I mean, so, so we haven't seen anything yet. The, the world will change and technology will change, but will never change is individuals uh, aptitude and his, his belief in himself and belief that there's something more than just himself in this world. And there's a reason why we shouldn't just do in the moral thing because it's, it's nice. No, it is, it is an essence of our being. And the funny thing is, you know, my mother always told me how you shout into the forest, the forest will shout back at you. My mother had, you know, of course she had a 
you know, was my mother after all, but she was a very unique person. She wanted me to see things and eat things and experience things. At age 12, she would throw me into a dance school. That's what a 12 year old wants to see is girls. No, my God. But seven years <laughs> later, I won a rock and roll dong contest in Port Said, right? Or she'd stuck me in, a, in an organ concert. Hey, oh, I, oh, oh, I've seen you dancing on, was it TikTok? Uh, and uh, I think your mother had a point. You, you, you have a knack. But you see, that, that she would do. But you better, if, if, I, if she got me a ticket to an organ concert, I had to go see it at age 13. I didn't want to. But, you know, when I saw Comina Burana, and the only reason I saw it because it was in Latin, and I was told it was all about sex, and I was very disappointed that it was in Latin because I didn't understand it. But the point is, all of that that she put in my head Number one is you'll be good to understand what is good and what is bad, and there's somebody watching you. And there is, there is nothing that I would say that, 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 can, that we cannot change, is that today's world, we don't do that anymore at home. We blame the teachers. The teachers are at fault, or the government is at fault, or programs don't work. There's always somebody else to blame. When I, when I had my first son, Dr. Spock was the big hero in children's books, and I want to do well as a father, I read the book, and it said, never say no to your child. The man literally created worlds of Americans that grew up the wrong way without any kind of, you know, having to justify yourself or not doing the right thing. And that's, we don't have any consequences anymore. So let, let me go back to something you said, it, it, it uh, triggered uh a thought of one of the most famous business book writers. His name's Jim Collins. He's written the books, Good to Great and Built to Last, uh, was a Stanford prof. Uh, you mentioned the 200 values to pick from and some of our um, audience members might think, oh, I should have 10 or 20 or 30 values. Jim Collins says something very interesting. He says, if a company has more than five values, yeah. it doesn't have any values. Right. And, and you see some long rosters of values. We stand for this and that and this and that and this and that. And ultimately, his point is that by doing that, you dilute a commitment to anything really important. He says, in fact, it's best if there's only three values. What do you think about that? Well, 100%, that's what I asked them to do. I asked them to pick three of the values, three of the talents, three of the gifts. And then we create a mission statement for you, a statement that you should, shouldn't be longer than a sentence and should be part of you. It's something as well, I work that extra hour, but I do it for this reason. And I'm dropping off this thing because I'm, I have, you know, I have a, a greater duty out there. And it becomes a habit. And, and we are, you know, you and I are, are habitual people. Over years, we have formed this kind of a person that, that we are. And somebody said to me the other day, well, what would you change if you, um, if you had to do it over again, I said nothing. Every single mistake I make, I made the person that I see today and I look in the mirror and I like myself. Well, hello, what's not to like? Look at this. <laughs> Ooh, I don't see you suffering from self-confidence at all. <laughs> Let me ask you this. You know, um, I've spent some time in the political world as well as business. Do you think there's a difference in the standards of character that you desire to see in a political leader from a business leader? Well, well, no, they should be governed by the same kind of basic rules that you know don't do unto others. It's funny, Winston Churchill though said that democracy is the worst kind of government, but it's the best kind that we have. 
it's in it's in my as a as a politician i could have to get elected every four years so two years polio spent i shouldn't say this to you you know that better than, than me in terms of what you can do and can't do but um there is more i don't i don't i should not exactly sure how to express that, but there's quite often the temptation to not tell the whole thing is based on that we the people are unreasonable. You know, people are constantly want more from the politician than they can possibly deliver. And, uh, <clears throat> and so, so we pushed the can down the road. I mean, in my book in 1998, I wrote that I felt we were overprinting since 1963. I made the point if we kept on overprinting, every house in Vancouver would be worth $5 million. And guess what? Last year, the West Side clocked in at 4.4 million. In my view, for no other reason than Milton Friedman said that inflation is primarily a monetary phenomenon. And so every one of the governments since 1963, when the average house price was 13,500, and when I wrote my book in 1998, which when it was 278,000, I just extrapolated the same thing. If we kept on printing it in the same percentage, and we're gonna go higher again, in, in my view. And that's all part of the wrong, of the, there had to come a point when the Keynesian theory was supposed to be, we spend more money when we have it, but we put it back in when we don't have it, but we just kept on giving more to the people and we were gladly ex accepting it or asking for it. And so um, unfortunately, I think a lot of the politicians that I really liked didn't get reelected. And they're, they're highly quality people and, and they get reelected in favor of who's maybe can throw a football or something. So you're, <laughs> that's the Robert Stanfield uh, right. gaffe that you're thinking of, um, the famous, uh, well-known <laughs> as the prime minister we never had. Uh, yeah. Well, you're, I, I think you're going to flaws in the institutions that we have in our democratic systems, as opposed to the type of person you want in leadership. And your initial comment was, well, whether you're a business leader or a political leader, you're kind of landing in the same place. You want to see certain things. Would you dare to articulate what the kind of things are that you, you would like to see in a good leader? Well, um, have I caught you? Have I got you tongue-tied for the first time well, in life? <laughs> well, yes, and that's not something that people accuse me of. <laughs> well, it's it's. I don't think it. Sometimes the builder, the leader, is grown. Sometimes he comes on without qualifications, seemingly. Sometimes he has all the qualification and literally uh, goes into the job. Um, I think today to be a politician, you would need a danger pay, or you would need an extra medal. Uh, what, what we do or expect from, from our leaders. Um, look, there's nobody in the government, and I happen to not particularly keen on the current government that we have, but they don't sit around the table and actually saying, how can we waste people's money? And how can we do something wrong? No, when General Electric lost $7 billion 15 years ago, they didn't sit around the table and said, okay, guys, let's lose $7 billion. They made mistakes. And the politicians make mistakes based on what their belief system is. And so maybe when, uh, when we brought our health system, I guess 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, maybe I wouldn't have voted for it from the wrong perspective as a, as a voter. 
but I think it's turned out to be a good thing. So I'm, I'm, I think the system works. We have a chance to see somebody that leads and then we have a chance to, uh, to vote against them uh, down the road. What I am concerned about is this total fight we have constantly. It isn't enough to, to state your opinion. You know a gentleman very well that I worked with in, in uh, Taiwan, a marvelous gentleman who, who could on one evening bring together all sorts of leaders of the Kuomintang party and the grandson of Chiang Kai-shek. It was just magnificent, but he was a liberal and I was a conservative. So we went for dinner, we had a bowl of wine, we talked at length, you know, as you know, I love the sound of my own voice. So um, at the end of the night, we did not change each other's mind. But I learned a lot more about Trudeau I didn't know, and he learned a lot more about Harper that he didn't know, and we parted friends. There was no, uh, but today, if I were to, whatever I say out loud, all of a sudden you have tons of groups of people that hate you just for making a mm. statement. And, uh, and, and so people get scared, so they back off when they don't speak up. So I totally empathize with that. I mean, I found it very frustrating that when I served as a member of parliament, I, for instance, didn't put my party logo on my website, although almost every other MP did. And it was no coincidence that our website was deemed by some uh, Samara, it's a nonpartisan democracy encouraging institute as one of the top 10 parliamentarian websites year after year, uh, partly was because we were open to people. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I serve people no matter what their political persuasion, because that was my job. And I just thought there's nothing special about that. But you did suffer this kind of a probium. You are under a party cloud. And no matter what party you're in in Canada, you know that more than 50% of the people didn't vote for you. So if they walk into the room and start with what party are you with, then you immediately have this drawbridge come down on intelligent conversation that it's really regrettable. But let me get back to this. What do you what do you seek for values in a leader? I'm going to point to a leader I think we all admire, Vladimir Zelensky, who famously said when asked, you know, do you want help in getting out of Kiev? He said, don't give me a helicopter. What it would give me ammunition. Right. Remember? And yeah. I think possibly the most moving speech in the last 50 years was his New Year's Eve address. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely incredible. And what I see in him is the epitome of courage. So there's one value that I like to see in a leader, courage. Uh, can you point to values that you like to see in other leaders or that you would like to espouse in yourself as a leader? Well, when you take a look at Zelensky, though, you probably wouldn't have voted for an actor, right? I mean, if, if in, a, in a different kind of environment. Right. So that's what I mean. The leader grows into the role, uh, the right kind of uh, right kind of leader. Her churches, Churchill grew into the role. But the the I am I'm more forgiving maybe on our leaders because see the courage is very, very important. Um, a vision is important. You have to have a dream. I um, to me, not to have a vision is almost uh, unforgivable as, as a leader. To some extent, Donald Trump was in my mind by saying, I am pro-American. And, and uh, that resonated with a lot of the people. They wanted to, to, um, they wanted to feel somebody that says, yeah, we are proud to be American. 
Now, I've been all my life, I've been pro-American, strongly pro-American. I could not believe some of the some of the things that went on in the in the economic crisis in 2008-2009 and we went down into Phoenix and we bought any real estate that we could get you know we, we, because we believed it but we believe in in the Americans because they're, they're innovation they have uh, they're, they're creative and uh, I once wrote a story to my bosses when I was in Taiwan that I felt we should put half the classroom full of Chinese and half the classroom full of Canadian students. The Canadian students would ask questions all the time, but wouldn't study much. And the Chinese wouldn't ask any questions and would study all the time together. <laughs> they would make the ideal, the ideal, ideal immigrant, the ideal, the ideal school. But by asking questions, we have become more innovative. And, and in terms of when I say American and Canadians, we are very creative people. And part of it is the open government and so on. What I worry about is this constant fight that we have. Um, we, we are, uh, there's no forgiving. There is, you know, you are, you're being immediately labeled. If you're not, well, if you're this, then you must be also that. Uh, and, uh, and I think we have, we will have um, serious problems in the future. So values that I'm hearing you espouse in leaders are uh, innovation, curiosity. Um, A vision. Having vision, you've alluded in different ways to integrity, that seems to be oh, absolutely, yeah. critical. Um, you agreed with me that courage is, is important. Sure. Uh, and sometimes we don't know someone's courageous until they suffer adversity. And then as you say, they yeah. grow into it, right? Uh, uh, and uh, certainly circumstances sometimes create leaders. My wife, Donna, says that, as you said, uh, people will grow into the role if you give them the opportunity. And I would add, surround them with good people to help mentor them and, and coach them. So those are some of the values that I think are important to Ozzy Jurek. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and and I, I wish that sometimes, you know, we are, we are driven by little groups and it's a group think, you know. Let the individual come out and debate with me all day long. Like I said earlier, I can sit down with somebody and debate it forever. Our Clint Eastwood was asked at the Trump election in 2016 whether he would vote for uh, Donald Trump. And he said, no, I'm going to be vote. Uh, no, I'm, I know whether he would, would vote for Ms. Clinton. He said, no, because she has the same policies than Obama, and I'm not keen on that. So the reporter said, oh, so you're a Trump fan. And he really went mad at him. He says, how can you put, I told you asked a question, I told you that does not as a consequence mean that I'm something else. Mm. And I think, and that's where we are today. And that no matter what you say, I, um, we, we, are, we are part of this. Uh, once you're part of a group, then you, you have this group think. And mm. that's the most worrisome aspect, particularly with technology coming as fast as it is. Is there things that I worry about? Yes, I don't like self-serve take out stores, I don't like them not to put the groceries in my bag. There's a thousand things where, where jobs are being eliminated by the tens of thousands. And so I, I predicted five years ago in my newsletter that we go to a four day week and maybe a three day week, that'll be the only solution. And the, the leader that's gonna bring it is gonna be either hated or loved, right? And so it's, it'll, it would take guts, it would take vision, but that's that's how we will not we should not be keeping people at home all the time because they lose self worth and self esteem and so on. They should be out there. Mm -hmm. 
Well, by your very effective tirade against polarization, I'm guessing another value you might add to your list of things you want to see in a leader is somebody who listens to opposing views. I don't know what the adjective is for that, maybe empathetic, or maybe maybe it's just a good listener, but somebody who has the nerve to say to an opponent, you're right, that's a good idea. Um, why don't we try that? Uh, I, I, you know, I often saw sitting in, in parliament, uh, these great opportunities for a leader of one of the parties to score tons of points by just stopping in his tracks and saying, you know, you're absolutely right. We're going to try that tomorrow. And I, I think there would be deafening silence in the House of Commons. You know, what would happen next? First of all, everybody would go, what? And then secondly, well, someone gave me a good idea. I'm going to steal it and run with it. And, 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 and then I own it. I mean, why wouldn't they do that? But do you ever hear that happening? You never hear that happening, right? And you should do it for no other reason than you would create great publicity. Yes, that's right. <laughs> the one and only who tried and yeah. But yeah. like, I don't think there's perfection in a democracy. And do we want that? I wanna have the opposing views. I want them to fight in public and I want to have an opportunity because you know, the only other solution is that we have an absolutely perfect godlike president with absolute powers. There's no such thing, right? Power corrupts and corrupts absolutely. So democracy is the way it is. And I will suffer through it, uh, whether it's the mayor, this particular mayor I don't like, or that particular mayor, or that, but that's fine. But the key is we need to go through constant space to petition, put it to the voter. You matter. You got to get out there. And we don't do enough of it. We tell them that only during the time of election. People don't, people understand, but they don't do. You know, whether it's my real estate action group on a very small scale, once I got people to actually doing something a little, once I got away from thinking, oh, I understand this now, I can, can, uh, can sort of rest. No, you can't. We have goals setting out there, which, uh, which is ridiculous. There's no accountability. The goal setting means that I want to lose weight. Okay, that's my goal. I want to lose weight. How my business plan, how to lose it is, I'll eat cabbage soup. Okay, that's another, that's my business plan. That's 20% of what I need to do. 80% is accountability. Who is going to hold me accountable to do all the things, sitting down and having the soup or whatever it is? We don't ourselves account, hold ourselves accountable or short-term accountability. That's what we need. We need to, people say to me, Ozzy, can I buy three condos in two years? And I say, let me see your business plan. And, um, and I say, no, uh, you can't because you don't have a deadline. When is the first one you own? It's September 1, and the next one is next June. The point is, we don't, because it, a business plan, when you write things down, it commits you to some sort of course of action. We say that's what we want to do, but we don't do it. My old mentor, Val Vanderwall, the world's largest motivator from Edmonton, told me humans don't like to write things down. And the only reason is that we are, then have a proof. That's what I said I was going to do, and I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. So we need to write it down. Yes, we need to create a value system for ourselves and for our companies. And then we have to live it. You live it by just going to work, you live it. You know. I think th th there's your clip right there. Write it down and then you have to live it. Doing either um, doesn't guarantee the results. And um, so speaking of writing things down, uh, you know, I regret to say we're nearing the end of our show, but one of the special... Uh, features of the show is we talk about 
books and, and thoughts for people who want to go a little more deeply. So what I'd like to do is go to um, uh, some of your books that you've written. And if I can get them on the screen here. Um, so um, I don't know if, if, if our audience is seeing what I hope they're seeing, but what I hope they're seeing is some of your publications here. I just wonder if you want to touch on any of them and how they relate to our topic tonight, you know, values in leadership. I know they're not focused on that. They're focused on real estate and that's your expertise, but you want to just touch on some of the things that you've, um, um, you, you've published and uh, give us a little insight into those. Well, it's primarily, it's a cop all about real estate. It's my view that, you know, we have uh, certain principles that you have adhered to and some goals that you should have for yourself. And, and forget about location. Location is now out of print, uh, but the same values are in the book, What, When, Where, and How to Buy Real Estate in Canada. But it's dated. Most of my books are dated. If somebody wants to see what I think about and what I do about, just subscribe to my OzBuzz, O-Z-B-U-Z-Z.ca newsletter. It's free. And uh, I, I'm a quirky guy. I will show you, I'll hopefully make you laugh. I will send you my song of the week, whether you like it or not. And I may have a Wagner opera this week and I'll have some heavy metal the next week. I feel that all of us as individuals have to lift ourselves out of the crowd. You know, we have to be different. And I'm a little eclectic. And, uh, you know, the whole idea is we live this absolute marvelous life in an absolute marvelous city in an incredible kind of an environment. And the whole world is would like to be here. And they want to immigrate here. And we're coming. And we're already here. And we're always complaining. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to complain about, right? So most of my books have this as a theme. The, the Donald Trump, uh, what, what Mr. Trump picked, I sent him six stories and he picked, and it's his editors that picked it likely, is that you have to understand yourself first before you buy any real estate. What is your objective? Do you want to make an investment and have income? Do you want to flip and make a profit? Do you want to be a shark? And all the learning that you have to do with either one of those people, just simplify it. So that's what that's all about. You know, a discussion of values and leadership would not be complete without some mention of humility. And I think it's really characteristic of Ozzy Jurek that he describes himself as quirky. I love, I love that term. And, I, and yeah. there's a picture of you from last Saturday. And I think that's when you were at your quirkiest talking about bubble baths in a conversation that was supposed to be about real estate. Uh, <laughs> Let, let, me, um, let me pull up a couple of other things that I thought our audience might be interested in, in terms of uh, my picks. And um, uh, in fact, uh, well, maybe I don't have them here, but let me just, uh, um, let, me, uh, let me say that uh, again, Zelensky's speech from uh, uh, New Year's Eve was uh, something really moving. The book that I mentioned earlier in the show, um, The Economics of Good and Evil, is very much on point. And um, uh, the, the Boys in the Boat, <clears throat> uh, the book about the uh, 1936 uh, uh, Olympic gold medalist is a fantastic book about character that I think our audience would enjoy. So um, uh, there we have that. And then, um, um, I, I, I want to um, thank you, Ozzy, 
for a fascinating conversation. And uh, I look forward to going back and listening to this again. Um, I'm going to uh, say OzBuzz is a great thing to subscribe to. And uh, before I let our audience go, let me just uh, direct your attention to um, what we've got coming up. And uh, Ozzy, I think you might like this one as well. It's, uh, well, we've got four episodes uh, on the horizon. And the one that, um, uh, the one that, uh, 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 is coming up in March is on uh, mental health and leadership with uh, two fascinating doctors. Uh, we've got Silky Cresswell from UBC, who's the head of the uh, Brain Health Initiative at UBC and, and world-renowned. And then Dr. Jean Talbot from Ottawa, who's a double doc, a PhD, and a psychiatrist in one of the lead psychiatrists at the University of Ottawa, along with uh, Marco Costamo, who was the head of Erosha, an environmental um, project that was initiated by a guy named Harris in the UK. And, and Marco started the branch here in Vancouver and now um, is the head of a, a group that promotes mental health. Uh, really fascinating. And then looking forward about lobbying, getting results from elected officials, from an activist, Kathy Peters, and a professional lobbyist, John Moonen. And then two uh, people who are uh, in Ozzy Jurek's categories in terms of motivational speaking, um, Dave Phillips and um, uh, Jonathan Michael, who are going to speak about character again. Um, and then uh, women in leadership, the challenges facing them along, um, we've got the uh, former director of the US Peace Corps, along with three young women leaders. Um, so a lot to look forward to, uh, but I have to say that this was a highlight and uh, Ozzy, uh, always a delight. And I'm so glad that you spent the time with our audience this evening. Thank you. It was an honor to be invited and I wish you the very best. I still don't know why you're not back in the Parliament. <laughs> the voters liberated me. <laughs> Thanks, Ozzy. Good night. Take care. Good night. <laughs>